And I invite you to turn with your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 11. That's page 68 to 69 in the Red Pew Bible. I invite you to turn there and really follow along. And uh, in a little bit, I'm going to read uh, the text and then um, be helpful for you to see where this message is coming from in the Bible. Exodus chapter 11. Last Sunday, I reviewed my sermon, and I discovered that uh, it was just over 50 minutes long. Man, you can be thankful I'm not usually that long. Uh, Why was I that long? Nick, I'm usually not that long. I would say blame it on the Bible. Uh, The first cycles of blows, you have the first three, the second set of three, we're moving at a much faster pace, and then all of a sudden it just kind of slowed down, and uh, I really couldn't subdivide them into three separate sermons that would just kind of destroy the internal unity of presentation. So that's kind of what I would say, blame it on the Bible. Um, now the storyline gets a little bit choppy uh, when we get to chapter 11, and it's way easier to subdivide into more manageable pieces. Uh, The last blow to Egypt occurs over four chapters, and there is a choppy nature to it that might be a little bit confusing. Um, First, the choppy nature is occurring because there's mixtures of conversations that are going back and forth, and then there is also thrown into these conversations new instruction on how to do ritual worship in coming years in the Jewish holy calendar. Um, And so, we have the the shifting of dialogue partners. And so, let's read. I'm going to read like chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 13. And so, just notice some of the dialogue partner shifts that occur, and I'll explain why that's occurring. Uh, Chapter 11 verse 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon on Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people in the sight of the Egyptians, and moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits by his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill." and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been and ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh, uh, Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to that which each uh, can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night and roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of the Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. As I mentioned, the dialogue partners shift. Uh, it's as if he's having a simultaneous conversation. He is conversing, maybe not like at a family meal, like where there's multiple conversations going on at the table, but more like he's having conversations with Israel in the background while, and, and, and he's wanting you to know that while he's also presenting a in the foreground conversation with Pharaoh. Now, the tone of each conversation is distinct, it's different. The conversation with Israel, well, graphic about the lamb, is nevertheless, it is a more positive, hopeful conversation. Conversation, on the other hand, with Pharaoh is negative. It is hopeless, it is discouraging to Egypt to have to receive that description of the coming blow. Now, these are happening concurrently in the context of this last blow as it's going to unravel. And the other aspect is there's this introduction, as I mentioned, of ordinances or, or um, rituals that will be included in the coming holy calendar of, of 
Israel. So the eating of the Passover lamb, this is the first occurrence of it. And so there's a pattern that's going to be established for the future. Lots of detail. Uh, we're going to come next Sunday to hear about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which might be as less familiar to us than the Passover meal itself. And then there is also a description of the consecration of the firstborn, and that's coming a little bit later. Now, today I'm just planning to teach through the eating of the Passover lamb and stopping there today because I don't like to preach a negative message without the positive implication of the gospel. Because in the midst of having to preach about judgment, I also want people to be fully connected to the positive hope that's for us in Jesus Christ. And the message to Israel, we become beneficiaries of in Jesus Christ. And it is a much more hopeful message to Egypt that is a characterization of an unbelieving world. Now, in Egypt, the first nine blows were designed to be a sufficient warning. So, if you're coming in here this morning and you're hearing this message about a heavy hand of judgment, you need to know that there were previously nine blows designed to warn Pharaoh. It didn't have to come to this. And in this, this warning, there is still a warning here that this, this, this death of the firstborn is coming, but we need to note that there is no Passover lamb here for Egypt. And Moses' message to Egypt is a prelude to blood-curdling terror at midnight. The Passover the lamb and its blood smeared on the door frames was the only way to avoid death for your family. And this ritual performed yearly was a prefigure. It was a, a symbol of a greater Passover yet to come and a greater Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. The gospel is a mixture of promises. It is also a mixture of warnings. And when we read John 3.16 we see positives, but there is also implied warnings. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, like a Passover lamb, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's really positive. But there is also a warning embedded in it, that if you do not believe if you do not believe, you will perish, and you will not have everlasting life. And my goal this morning is to give you resources to chase away doubts and fears that if you are placing your faith and trust in the greater Passover lamb, you don't have to worry when death's doorstep you come to. You don't have to be filled with anxiety you can know the character of your God who loves you, who sent His only begotten Son, that you might have a capacity of strength within you. A character of our salvation is that God is 
for us. He wants a relationship with us. And our salvation is rooted not in what we do, but in the character of our great God. It is His salvation that we trust in for our salvation. And so, as we consider there's mixed messages to Egypt and Israel, we ought to also find courage to live godly in this wicked age. We don't have to worry when we stand for righteousness and obey the commandments of Christ. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us. So, first, I want you to note first the character of our great God, and then we'll consider the two contrastive messages, because that's really what this is all about. Our God is bound to His people with cords of love. Verses 1 through 3, I see this evidently, and also in verses 9 through 10. God bound Himself to Israel. Now, the scene in verses 1 through 3 where the Lord says to Moses, you know, yet one more plague I'm going to bring. That scene, I personally believe, occurred before Moses was summoned to the courtroom in the midst of the darkness. The previous plague in chapter 10, we see um, Pharaoh getting angry at uh, Moses because he sees Moses as the obstacle to having light return to his community. And Pharaoh says in verse 28, get away from me, take care of never to see my face again. On that day you will see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. I believe is now bookended to the message that we see at the beginning of chapter, of chapter um, excuse me, in verse 4, verse 4, 11, 4. And so there's this like little like background conversation that's kind of inserted itself into to view, and the Egyptians in darkness. I believe Moses is there's light in Goshen. I believe that in the three days of darkness, Moses is having conferences with the leadership of of Israel to say, "Look, we've got one more plague coming." And then we're going to have to get ready to leave the land. It's going to come quick, and this is what you need to start to expect. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that even Moses himself knew that this was coming. Moses knew all the way back before he even entered the land of Egypt that this would come. In chapter 4, verse 21, maybe it would be helpful just to flip back a few pages just so you can see it. Chapter 4, verse 21. If you flip back, you see the Lord saying to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Please note that Pharaoh, in his role as the 
governor of Egypt, he is trying to negotiate to save, he's expected to negotiate to save his own firstborn. In the communication to Pharaoh by Moses to say, your firstborn son is going to die, it's expected that Moses would say, or excuse me, that Pharaoh would say, what must I do in order to save my son? But he doesn't. He doesn't. I don't know how you feel as a parent, but if my firstborn son was being held hostage, so to speak, I would be like, what do you want me to do? I'm willing to give up my life for my child. Pharaoh is a wicked, wicked man. He has no real love even for his firstborn. Now, I understand that he's fighting and negotiating with God, but he shouldn't be. But I also want you to see that in this that God Himself is bound to Israel in a way that Pharaoh is not. He will not let his firstborn son, Israel, be separated from his love. And God binds himself to Israel with covenant cords. Israel, he says, if you look at that text in chapter 4, verse 23, verse 22, it says, Israel is my firstborn son. And when parents conceive a child, they become highly, highly invested in their child. Life changes when you have children. We become highly invested in our ch children just as God becomes highly invested in the offspring of Abraham. And the reason why parents become so highly invested is found that we have a human nature that is made in the image of God. God exists in loving covenant union as Father, Son, and reciprocating love between them as the Holy Spirit. Social science describes a nuclear family, at least it used to define a nuclear family as consisting of a mother, a father, and of children. And that unit mirrors the threefold love of our triune God. Because out of the love of the Father and the Son proceeds the Holy Spirit, just as a child proceeds out of the love of a father and a mother have for each other, there is proceeding from them a firstborn that then becomes the object of their love. This, this is the reality in which we live our lives. This, you know, we would like our world and society wants to have a different kind of world, but they're fighting against the original design that is patterned after the image of God. Now, even though we have inherited sin natures from our forefather Adam, we still have the vestiges of this image of God within our social order. Second Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says this, that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially 
for members of his household, he has defined the faith, denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. The reason why Paul can say this, it is manifestly evident that this is the order in which God has created things. And even if the unbelieving world does this, why shouldn't the believing world do this as well? I think he is also indicating that parenting children is something that we don't really have to be told to do. It's a natural affection that wells up within us, and so we are highly invested, and a word for this high investment is the word covenant. We have a covenant with our children, and it is reciprocal so that in our older age, our children are responsible to uh, return the, the same kind of love and commitment. Pay attention, kids. And in similar fashion, God binds Himself to Israel in a parental covenant love that is reciprocating and worthy of the respect of Israel in return to God who conceived them. God is loyal to His chosen people, and when God binds Himself to His children, He will not let them go. And when our children sin, we as parents must also discipline them, and sometimes it creates the most painful of circumstances. And we have tensions between whether we will be loyal to Christ or we will show our loyalty to our children by showing them Christ. They don't have to be split, but often they so much become split. We can also, in our day and age, it's very difficult for us at times to have to put the loyalty to Christ ahead of loyalty to our children. And we are in a very unique time in world history where Christians are being called upon to deny the realities of marriage. There may be times where we have to take a very hard call, and we may have to avoid participation in something like a gay wedding because we have a greater loyalty to Christ. That doesn't mean that we take that decision lightly. We have to be very compassionate in the way we communicate that. But I believe that what this indicates is that God's love is stronger than any temporary suffering. Now, I'm coming back to the text in chapter 11 a little bit more. I have, I've been kind of framing the first two subpoints on chapter 4 in what we were told would come to pass, but here we see God's covenantal love as stronger than any temporary suffering. Here in chapter 11, Moses is communicating to his, his family that, that things are going to change. We were in a very oppressed state, and we had to get bricks without any straw, and we were genuinely being oppressed. And that was the beginning of Moses' ministry. It didn't look great. 
And Israel was ready to shoot the messenger, and the severity of that trial was very real. Yet God's love for Israel was greater than the suffering that they experienced. And it's evidently so because now, instead of scrounging around for straw, they're going to turn to their neighbor and say, could I take your silver and your gold? I have to go out and worship Yahweh, and I don't have anything I can put on. Would you give me your earrings? And they will loot the Egyptians. That is a signal of God's love being stronger than the suffering that they were called to endure. God's love to us is greater than any loss that we might be called to bear for His name. I think of Romans 8 verse 18, which says, I consider the the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we stand before our Lord and Savior, and He shows us the prints and the nail prints in His hands, all the suffering that we have been called to bear for Him will wash away, and the glories of being in the presence of God will fill our souls with unspeakable joy. We have no capacity. We have to go through immortality to have the capacity to to understand the joy that will be ours. And obedience to Christ, though, I believe can result in a kind of joy that is prefigured of the greater joy to come. I share a personal example that occurred in family in which a parenting challenge came about in which a young adult daughter was behaving in ways that were inappropriate, and I'm trying to be careful with how I describe inappropriate, and she was clearly violating the, the home rules of her, of her Christian mother. And her mother had to make a hard decision to draw a line requiring that her daughter move out, and it became painful. And a daughter could only afford, at best, substandard living conditions on a payless shoe source salary, living and supporting herself in her own apartment in a shady part of town. Yet over time, in observing through several years, multiple years, there was a communication back to the mother that while that was a hard call, it was exactly what I needed. And there was gratitude and love. Now, certainly, there were things that came out of that that she has to live with now for many years, but yet the love between mother and daughter was significantly greater than it had ever been. Truth in love, even tough love, may be a kind of suffering that we are called to bear, but God's commitments to us are greater. They are greater and will assure us of greater joy to come. Paul argues that God's covenant love is stronger than the suffering that we are called to experience, and I see this in Romans 8. I personally reflect and see Paul 
looking back on Exodus and seeing this truth. For he says in chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that the firstborn, do you hear it? The firstborn among many brethren, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See the end of that chain? Is there is a glorification that occurs. God had a covenant relationship with Israel. God had a covenant relationship with Jesus. And God makes covenant with us. God's covenant love for Jesus, for Israel, and us is greater than death itself. God called Israel many times out of its own non-existence. He called His Son out of the grave, and He will call you and I out of the grave too, and He will set us in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 7 says, in the coming ages, He might show to us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a day that will be to sit in heavenly places and to experience the the love that's unmediated. We will experience the actual love directly, and we will have glory within our souls. You see, the Lord is and He has ever been in control over this situation, and we see that in verses 1 through 3. We see it also in verses 9 through 10, in which, which um, God says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before the Lord, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This, has not, this did not escape the Lord's control. He knew what was happening, and His commitment to Israel was significant. I think it's important for us to recall that, that as parents, no trial for the present seems easy. I sometimes kid with young parents that um, they will stop needing their diapers changed by 13. It's exaggeration, obviously, but when you're in the midst of it, it feels like it's never going to end. But the reality is, parenting is one of those trials that God calls us to. It is a joyful trial, but it is a trial nonetheless. Pastoring is one of those trials. Putting to death sin that keeps rising up in our hearts is also one of those trials. And choosing to be a faithful church member when people don't act the way that they ought to is definitely one of those trials. Those who drop by the wayside may not be His people, but I can tell you this, God will always pull His people through. And God is bound to carry out His sovereign decree. Chapter 11, verse 4 to 9, 
we have the first message that's directed towards Pharaoh. Moses, uh, and I, just to kind of put this in context, if you look back at chapter 10 in verse 29, the very last verse of chapter 10, Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And I believe that that's the context in which now Moses is going to reveal to Pharaoh that the firstborn is going to die. It's a terrifying announcement. And if you notice in verse 4, Moses said, "'Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt.'" How do, you, how do you know when it's midnight if it's already been dark for 72 hours? You know that God knows the day and the hour. He knows when He will act. And the taking of the firstborn here is described as all-encompassing, from the greatest, sitting by Pharaoh's right side as his son, all will be affected, even down to the, the maidservant who sits running a handmill. Verse 5, everyone. And in verse 6, we see that everyone will be heartbroken. There will be such a wail of despair that will rise, except in Goshen. There will not be a cry. There won't even be a dog, as it says barking at God's people. It will be quiet. They will have a sereneness. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Moses had been a prophet of light to Pharaoh for nine consecutive blows. It's not like he didn't have any warning. There were nine opportunities to, to turn and to repent. You would think that after nine rounds of devastation and death that Egypt would bow the knee to God. How many people around us have experienced death and have simply said, oh, it's just the way it is? On Mars Hill, Paul told the Athenians that it is God who gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And from one man, every nation of mankind lives on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries. An allotted period is a reference to closing date on their life. Everyone has an allotted period. Death may come at midnight. Death may come tomorrow. But certainly, no one can say that death is not something we don't really know about. Maybe people don't understand why death occurs, but death is a decree of judgment. But death itself is simply a prelude to the terror of an eternal hell. 
Now, we want to avoid this conclusion, but we can't. We can't avoid it. God, though, in ways we may have difficulty comprehending, receives glory in the punishment of sin. God, who is infinitely holy in His nature, is vindicated in the infinite punishment of sin. Whether it is the suffering of the sinners or it is through a substitute, God receives glory when sin is punished because it says, yes, you were right, God. That was wicked. That was evil. And Moses was that light. He was He was preaching truth, and yet people love darkness rather than light. See, Moses was preaching this, that you are condemned already if you do not believe. Why do you think Moses was angry? That we we read here, he kind of tells what's going to happen, and then we we see (laughs) at the end of verse 6, Oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. That would help. At the end of verse 8, it says, And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Chapter 11, verse 8. He went out in hot anger. Why do you think he did that? Because it didn't have to be this way. Pharaoh is like Adam who made a choice for all of us. As a ruler of his nation, Pharaoh was making a choice for his people. And it didn't have to be this way. And he made a decision that affected everyone. He didn't negotiate with God and humble his heart and say, okay, I will let your firstborn go. Well, the reality is is that God will be glorified in the just execution of judgment, and that's what's being communicated to Pharaoh. But there is also something positive here, and this is why I included this section, and I'm not going to go into all the detail of the ceremonies in this sermon. That will come a little bit later. But God will be glorified in the just execution of grace. There is grace that's given to Israel. Now, if it's required, it's not grace. This is something that is merciful, because they are sinners too. Yet Israel was given more light than Egypt. More light. In what way? Well, first, they were told that there was a lamb that they could share with other families and eat it in verse 4, chapter 12. And They were told that they could select a lamb that had no blemish. And then third, they were told, now you can take the blood and you can put that over top of the doorposts and the lintel, and then when the death angel comes, it will pass over you. That's light. That's not something that was given to Egypt. They were given grace. Why? Because God is bound to His people with cords of love. Israel is His firstborn, and He made provision for their salvation. 
Yet He also provided them a choice. They could reciprocate and trust Him. They could choose to respond, or they could choose not to. And at the very end, Pharaoh and his people were denied this choice, but they had lots of previous opportunity to choose. But the judgment had to come, but yet grace also came. And God saw the blood as a sign that they had come to the light, that they loved light rather than darkness. And if they were to put their trust in the Word of the Lord by obeying Moses, they would be saved. They were believing that God would be gracious to them and spare their lives. And this is the nature of saving faith. Saving faith is rooted in the belief that God loves me and He has made a way for me so that I might be saved. God loved Israel and told them what to do. God loves the world and tells the world what they need to do. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's powerful. That's, that's atonement blood being covering. Pastor theologian D.A. Carson uh, shared this very helpful analogy. He asked this question, he said, what if you were a firstborn and you saw your father swabbing the blood on that door lintel and then on the, the posts? How would you have slept that night knowing that the death angel was coming? Do you not think you might be a little bit anxious about it? But Carson very wisely observed something, that our worry adds no additional power to that blood. Why? Because it's a symbol of covenant blood. God is so bound to those who are drawn to the light, that He will not let you go. And no amount of worry will ever make that blood more powerful. And in the Passover, and in John 3.16, is both warning and promise. And if you suffer from extreme doubt, I invite you to look back at the light. Look at the light. Jesus was the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Are you looking at the light? Are you believing? Don't look at yourself to think that maybe you can add something to the power of that blood. And I would encourage you, stain your heart the lintel of your heart with the blood of Jesus and the death angel is going to pass over you. And when death's dark veil comes, you will open your eyes 
in the resurrection and the just. You will rise just as Jesus rose because His blood covers your soul. He will give you the capacity to keep His commandments. You might think to yourself, I am trying to be the best Christian I can be, and I keep falling into the sin. Remember, His blood is bound to you, and He will not let you go. You can confess your faults and get up off the ground and keep pursuing Him in His glory.